Well, my friends, the epitaph, or what you have written on a gravestone, is a bit of an art form. Unless you're loaded, uh, there's only so much space to sum up a person's life. And some people have taken it to a whole new level. I wanted to show you a few examples. Uh, Merv Griffin, the TV uh, host and show creator, his tombstone reads, I will not be right back after this message. Uh, Some disappointment and yet a sense of humor is evident in this one. I was hoping for a pyramid. Uh, This one I found pretty humorous. The Iveson's finally found a place to park in Georgetown. Anyone from the D.C. area, I'm sure, would get that joke. Uh, This one, she always said her feet were killing her, but no one believed her. And last, the classic, I told you I was sick. Now, we can appreciate a sense of humor about death. But it is a pretty serious subject. And what is as serious a subject is the life we live leading up to that. We all meet the same end as far as our physical death. But we may not all be remembered the same. And that is the message that I want us to focus on in this passage in 2 Samuel. It's the application that we really want to highlight And the question that we want to ask repeatedly is, what do you want on your tombstone? We're wrapping up the book of 2 Samuel, and even though David's life continues to be chronicled, in chapter 23 we encounter his last words and a list of some of the heroes of that time. And we really don't need a lot of background because it's not chronologically placed. Uh, We don't need a lot of background, so we're just going to jump into the text and begin reading. And we read in 2 Samuel chapter 23, now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. How is David identified in this passage? Well, there's there's four different things that are described. Uh, The son of Jesse Right? He's an Israelite. This is the legacy of his father. The man who was raised on high. It was God who exalted him into a relationship with himself and his role in Israel. There's no delusions of him pulling himself up by his own bootstraps. The anointed of the God of Jacob. God, with that role, gave David a job to do. He was anointed for it. And he's also described as the sweet psalmist of Israel. This is what David did. Right? He worshiped. Right? God did so much. Right? God did everything in his life and David's response was to recognize that and to worship God for it. What is conspicuously absent in his role or in this description especially considering the rest of our passage that we're going to read today, is his role as a warrior. What is emphasized is his being a worshiper. What do you want on your tombstone? You know, if we look at these different descriptors, they might apply to us as well. 
Each of us is, is a child, a son or a daughter. Our family is important. It roots us, it identifies us, it shapes us. And what is more, God has given those who believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ the right to become sons and daughters of him. If you've believed in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you've been raised on high, so to speak, to a relationship with God. God did the work. And we get to be adopted into the family of God. Again, by his work, not our own. And believers are, we might say, anointed or appointed for a role. It's to be a disciple maker. It includes missions right where you are. It includes missions globally. It's influencing others in our sphere for the gospel. And that brings us to that last role of being a worshiper. That's what it is. It's recognizing God and his role and what he does and being able to tell others about it. How God has influenced and shaped and saved our lives. So again I ask, what do you want on your tombstone? How do you want to be remembered? As he continues on in verse 2, he says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. Perhaps you picked up on that theme. It's speech. Right? God's word the, speaks by me. His word, tongue, spoken, said, over and over and over again. It is God's word that is central in David's life. Rooted in that truth that God has revealed. Are we listening? Is that what our legacy, is that what our reputation will be? Someone who listened to God and actually did what he said to do. That goes in our own personal lives and it also involves how we interact with others. David was a leader. All of us have some kind of leadership role in our lives. How are we going to lead? Is it going to be through the wisdom of man or is it going to be from God? That's where David goes next into this role of leadership. He says, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? It's fitting that David talks about leadership in his last words. That's been a theme of his entire life, godly leadership. How to do it? Sometimes, how not to do it. And he says, when one, when one rules justly, well, how would we know what that is unless there is a standard? God is the standard. There has to be an objective standard of righteousness, otherwise we wouldn't have any concept of what justice is. And we have his word to guide us. And it is in the fear of the Lord that this just leadership is described. 
He acknowledges God's rule over everything, God's sovereignty. He is over all. David uses this nature simile to describe the godly leader and what he does for his followers. And and he uses a conditional statement, when, when one rules justly over men. When that happens, when someone is leading in the fear of God, in the respect and honor of God, it's pleasant. Right? It's pleasant, it's hope-filled, it's refreshing, it's nourishing. Is that going to be our reputation with those that we influence? God led in the confidence of what God had promised him. Now, God made a a covenant with David that was fairly unique. But God also established a covenant, a new covenant, with those who believe in Jesus Christ. And it's a covenant that is everlasting in length, and yet we only have this life, this dash, to respond to it and live in it. Once we do, it is secure, and we can rest in that. And then everything goes perfectly. Well, you might almost get that sense from this passage that everything David touched turned to gold, right? Prospering, all of his help and desire. Well, if these are really David's last words, not everything turned to gold in his life. He survived multiple attempts on his life. He weathered a coup. He lost children. He committed adultery and murder. So no, not everything went well. Right? God was not behind that, so to speak, prospering him in his sin. But what I wonder in this last passage is if it's a little bit like Psalm 37.4. Psalm 37.4 reads, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now there's one version of interpretation in that verse that makes it sound like God is sort of that cosmic vending machine. You ask and he just delivers. But I've also heard it explained, and I, and I love the, sort of the double entendre of this verse. Because yes, there are times when God honors our requests. Right? He graciously gives us some things that we desire. But also... God may also give you your desires, meaning he may also implant or impart proper desires in your heart as he is transforming your life. And the more our desires align with God's, the more our, the deeper our relationship with him will be and the more our desires will be fulfilled because they are also God's desires. He does switch gears from a, from a fairly positive note to a little more negative. He says, But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a, spe- of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. David continues this nature simile. In the Pacific Northwest, the instant, the thing that we might think about instantly is blackberries. 
right? They are ever-present. They're thorny. You really don't just grab them by the hand and rip them out of the ground. You need tools, right? You need to uproot them so they don't keep coming back. Eliminate them entirely. Burn them. Whatever it takes to get rid of them, right? And as a good king, David had to uproot evil in Israel. Seemed like it was around every corner, even of his own house. But he needed to uproot that so it didn't choke out his people. Right? In other words, the godly leader is, is willing to take out barriers to growth. And that sometimes includes people. Now, we want to be very careful in how we approach that. Right? We cannot get rid of anyone who sins. That would be a, a very lonely and hypocritical path for us to take. However, we can take that principle and guard our people, whoever that may be. Church, family, community, battalion, whatever that is, to guard our people and root out sin. Can we lead them away from sin and guard them from those who would have them fail? Will that be our reputation? Is that how we would be known? Is that what would be on our tombstone? And of those that we love. Can we lead people away from sin in general. To get into people's lives and uproot sin. To help them make good choices about who they're going to be around. We are positively or negatively influenced by those we are around. And it's with that thought that the passage switches gears. And focuses on those that David spent time with. We start getting into some of his mighty men. Again, the people that surrounded him, the people that he spent time with in battle, forging those kind of relationships under the harshest of circumstances. And we read in verse 8, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Beshebeth, a Tekemenite, he was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. As a godly leader, David invested in and surrounded himself with these mighty men. Now his successes were due to God, but also involved were these other men. And even within his group of 30, he invested heavily in Three. It kind of reminds me of Jesus' circles. Jesus had crowds following him. He had a group of 70. He also had a group of 12, maybe most famously. And he also invested even more in a group of three in there. We all have some of these concentric circles of relationships. And, and these, these three rose to the top. Josheb Bashabeth was a mighty warrior. And I think what's interesting about this, you look at one man against 800, you think, oh, that's probably an exaggeration. Ah. <laughs> Maybe he had others with him. Maybe it was him. Over and over in Scripture, we see this principle that, that God doesn't need overpowering force to win victories. He doesn't need that from us. And that will be an important theme next week, in fact. 
Uh, next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Now, Eliezer probably got an early start with violence, uh, with his dad's name being Dodo. He was either going to end up upside down in a trash can a lot, or maybe be the man that he turned out to be. He was another one of the three, uh, the second most honored, and, and he was someone who stayed when everybody else fled. Right? Here was a man who, who stayed until his hand literally froze to his sword. The rest of Israel coming back only after the job was done. But, but, who was given credit? Eliezer is honored, but who is given credit? God. Right? The Lord brought about a great victory that day. And as we're reading through this, yes, it's talking about specific people, but who was behind all of that? God. Above, behind, beside, in front. God. And I hope that that would be the reputation that as many things as we might accomplish, that God is the hero of our story. That that would be something on our tombstone. In verse 11, next to him was Shema, the son of Egi, the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. So here we have a battle described. The Philistines went after crops, as they often did. Uh, he defended the crops when everybody else fled. Common theme there. His stand was against the Philistines. And it's sort of as though he was making a stand uh, for the promised land. Right? Through, through the faithfulness through his faithfulness, the Lord worked another great victory. To this day, Shema remains the only person in history who has ever defended lentils. Uh, verse 13. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. We have to be careful about our words. Because three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink it. He poured it out. To the Lord, and said, "Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do that. I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. You have to understand this, right? These mighty men hear this wistful longing of David, and they're like, "Yeah, we're bored. Let's do something." So they go through two camps of Philistines walk miles to Bethlehem and back through the two camps of Philistines and give David some water, which he promptly pours out 
on the ground. Now some might view that as rude or uncaring or wasteful or insulting. That's not how it was meant. Right? It's actually showing such high regard for what his men did and their bravery and their sacrifice that he turns that sacrifice into a sacrifice for the Lord. He gives their actions spiritual significance. Although, to be fair, we only read about them doing it once. Right? Are, we, are we honoring the sacrifices that people make for us? Or do we just take that for granted? Are we surrounding ourselves with people who will make us better? Are we inspiring others with our worship? Well, in verse 18, we've gotten done talking about the, the three. And now we look at some other uh, mighty, some, some plus ones, so to speak. Now, Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the 30. And he wielded a spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. Abishai was David's nephew, uh, the brother of Joab, and he was held in high regard. You see some of his exploits described in Scripture. Um, And that's why he ended up leading this group of 30 men, even though he was sort of number four. In verse 20, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when the snow had fallen. Beautiful setting. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three, and David set him over his bodyguard. Here was another doer of great deeds. Killed a lion, right? killed a couple aerials, which is really brave to attack mermaids inland. Uh, He also killed a a handsome or huge uh, Egyptian, and and David rewarded him with a place over his bodyguard, right? Someone who would be one of the closest people to David ever, and choosing and training the people who would be closest to David. So David surrounds himself with men who are strong and courageous and valiant, and we And we hope, as is that undercurrent through this entire passage, respectful and honoring of the Lord. Now, the grace works, we do believe that every uh, word of the Lord is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says. And I could wander through the next few verses, the next two slides full of names. I did practice, but here's what I think might be more helpful for us, because I don't know that I'm prepared to to tell you the significance of all of these place names and so on. But at the end of this long list of names, we end in verse 39 with Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. 
So this is a description of the 30 men. So a couple things we learned from that. One, David may not have been able to count. But stay tuned for the next week in the census. Um, he, he apparently got better at it. Um, it is interesting that, that we count 37 people in the 30. Now, it might have just been kind of a round number, but it also may very well have been that people were replaced as they fought in battle. What we also notice is that all of these men that we've described are known for their exploits in battle. Now, in speaking to a largely military uh, congregation, I, I want to point out one thing humbly, if I may. Yes, these men were valiant and mighty in battle. My hope, my hope as I would hope for each and every one of you who is serving in the armed forces, that your reason for joining was not a legal way to pursue violence. Right? Those people are scary. I'd like to think that these, that these men are seen as heroes in the passage because they did something that needed to be done. Right? They responded to a need that they stood up to the people groups around them who wanted to annihilate all of the Israelites. That they stood up for the kingdom of God that, that he had established. I'd kind of like to think that they would have preferred just to train or even to just to raise a family and farm. But they had a greater need. And when I look at at you who serve in the military. Right? It's my hope and it's my assumption, honestly, because I, because I know you. That what drew you to the military is something deeper than a love of violence. Right? That you, that you joined because you wanted to stand for something, for justice, for freedom, for protection, that you wanted to stand against some things. You wanted to stand against injustice and against tyranny and against oppression. That probably all of you would prefer not to have to fight. But because of sin in this world, you take on the mantle of responsibility to do something about it. What is, what is interesting about most of the men that we've read about in this passage is that we don't know what their life was like off the battlefield. Incredibly brave and valiant and courageous men on the battlefield, to be sure. My hope is that they were godly men who took the role of man and husband and father and son and brother seriously. We do know a little bit about some of the character of these men. And I think the irony and the tragedy of this passage, especially in verse 39, is one name. Uriah the Hittite. If you've been with us through Samuel, you might recognize that name as the man that David killed because he sinned with his wife. And I think once again, the the righteousness and integrity and loyalty of Uriah is juxtaposed with David's failures. Uriah seems to be used as that righteous standard. And we're left with a bit of a mixed 
legacy with David with those last words. I would kind of hope that we would try to minimize the asterisks in our legacy and on our tombstone. I mean, think about your life. What do you want on that? What do you want to be remembered for? I have a fair amount of asterisks in my life. Right? If I'm thinking about my junior high and high school years, there's, there's a huge asterisk of uselessness in my life. So students, please pay attention. Right? I, was, I was pursuing lust pretty much during that time. And I was basically useless spiritually. That's a huge asterisk in my life. Right, what do we want to be known about? He was a great gamer and a pretty good dad. Right, at least she didn't throw things. He was an employee. They acted like a Christian on Sundays. Is that what we are striving for? Or are we striving for something more? We have our birth date. We have our death date. That dash in the middle, that dash in the middle is of such profound importance. And I want to leave us with a couple of different thoughts as we close out this passage. You have already built a reputation. Every single one of us has built a reputation that we are known by. It has taken our entire life to build that And we will continue building that as long as we are alive. I want us to pursue a legacy that looks good on a tombstone. Not for vanity's sake, but for the sake of influencing others in the right ways. And so there's two options for us. One option might be to stay the course. For those that are investing in your relationship with God, keep Doing it. Don't give up. For those that are investing in your family and other relationships, keep investing. Don't give up. Keep building disciples. Keep your integrity. Keep working hard. Keep looking for opportunities to worship and glorify God. For some of us, it might this might be a time to change the trajectory of our epitaph a little bit. Or a lot bit. I don't know. Right? To start investing in our relationship with God. To start prioritizing our family and other relationships that are important around us. To confess wrong. To deal with sin. To, to look for others to develop. The second thought had um, is that we need to be able to allow people to change their trajectory. I'm going to tell you a quick story. I was involved in a memorial service years ago. And after the service, I was, I was talking to people, thanking them for coming. And I, I came up to this, uh, this couple, asked how they knew the deceased. Well, they said... We're just here to make sure they're dead. Oh, 
would you care for some refreshments? Right? And I, I, I get it. There, there was a trajectory change in this person's life. The person that I knew loved Jesus deeply. But others were not going to allow him to be known by that reputation. What do we want to be known for? Our darkest hours, our darkest years? Or do we want to be known for the trajectory that we're headed in now? And I get it. When there's hurt involved, it's really difficult to allow others to change. But we need to allow them to live their best years yet, to pursue their best epitaph. Because in reality, we are really not preparing for death. We are preparing for what comes after. Those who trust in Jesus are going to live forever with him. Those who trust in anything else will suffer apart from him forever. And so I hope that for our sake and for the world's sake, that our tombstones would look a little bit more like something that glorifies God. Maybe something along the lines of 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Would you pray with me?